Welcome to Trainer Tools. I'm John Tomlinson, and in this episode I'm speaking to Catherine Thompson about an interesting theory of communication called structural dynamics. Before I spoke to Catherine, I didn't actually know anything about this theory, and I've listened to it quite a few times because this took quite a lot of editing down because it was such a long and in-depth conversation. And I have to say, every time I've heard it, I've understood it a bit more and seen its value a lot more. So I really hope that this is interesting for you. If you want to know any more information, please see the links on the website, contact Catherine directly, and I hope you find it useful. I'm here with Catherine Thompson. How are you, Catherine? Uh, Very well, thank you, John. And what are you going to talk to us today about? Uh, This morning, I'd like to talk to you about something called structural dynamics. It's about the theory of face-to-face communication. And I thought it might be interesting, given that people who are in L&D, training facilitators, coaches, everything they do is about having conversations. And um, it's fairly new in this country. The research has been done in the States by a Dr. David Cantor. It's really influenced the work I do now and the way I work. So I thought it might be useful to explore that with you this morning. So it's a theory about communications, which has a direct application for us as trainers, facilitators in the training room. I think so, yeah. So how would you like to structure it? So I thought I would take a few minutes and just give you some of the background to how this um, research came about and the models and concepts that came out of it and then the how they are applied in organisations and with people in organisations in relation to every single conversation that goes on. And it might be worth me sharing how as an interventionist because we as L&D practitioners are part of all the conversations, you know, we're part of that dynamic as well. And how much do we help that dynamic? How much do we get in the way of that dynamic? And how much does that affect the outcome of what we do? So you're going to start by discussing the theory itself and then go on to its application and then any kind of stories you've got about when you've, you've used it. My first question would be, there's a lot of these kind of theories around about the way that we behave and the way we communicate. Things like MBTI, things like DISC, insights, um, transactional analysis. How, in your opinion, does this theory distinguish itself from those? Why would we look at this rather than just go back to those other theories? When you start to look at personality, it's fine to recognise traits in yourself that suggest that you may or may be this way or that way. In the, in the way you work, in the way you live. Um, and it goes a little bit, I think it goes deeper than personality. Part of the model looks at um, those things that are really less visible. So you look at the behaviour, you see the behaviour, you hear what people say, but you don't actually know why that is. Why are you saying that in that way with such strength of conviction? So when you see people who are clashing, and not seeing each other's perspective. Why is that? Because what you just see is the behaviour. Neither of the parties, you really usually know where the depth of that feeling and exchange is coming from. So this this theory takes it to a, a level where David's research has allowed us to create what he calls um, a baseline profile, a behavioural profile, which looks at the actual action stances you take in a conversation, 
your internal operating system and the actual language that you use. And from the combinations of those things, you, you're able to know what you are most likely to do when you get into a conversation. If you then engage with someone who's different from you, you can immediately see and read what the difference is. And then by expanding your own repertoire, you can stop yourself getting into stuck patterns of conversation. Right. So you feel it offers us a different kind of insight into the way that we have conversations or the way that we communicate and engage with other people. Absolutely. You get a deeper insight into yourself and then you get to read other people. And then you know which patterns are likely to result in stuck conversations. And as the interventionist, you can expand your repertoire to prevent that stuckness. I like the word stuckness. That's a good word. Yeah. So it's about how we relate to the other people rather than relate to the idea or the content of the communication. Yeah. The model just gives you an understanding and a language for what you're seeing and hearing in a conversation. When you're able to do that, you have much more scope to in, make an intervention in that conversation that's going to be more helpful. So for example, I used to run train the trainer courses, John, many years ago for people who were wanting to get qualifications in training and uh, training management. And I would observe trainers getting into what I call ping pong kind of uh, dialogues with trainees in the classroom. So someone would say something and then the trainer would say something different or, you know, like oppose what's just been said. And then that person would say it again and the trainer would oppose again. So what does that do to the dynamic of the conversation? Once the, once the trainer is in it and is part of that dynamic, what do you really have to do if your intention is to help somebody learn? So do you want to talk us through the, the actual theory behind the model? Okay. It sounds so really this, interesting. I'm quite looking forward to it now. It? <laughs> I sound really, yeah, I'm looking forward to it now. Anything that offers that kind of insight um, when you're in the training room that kind of lets you be a more sophisticated facilitator and read what's going on, I find absolutely fascinating. So... Do you want to talk us through the actual theory itself then? So, so Dr. David Cantor, I mean, David's, is, you know, he's in his 80s now and um, he has a background in family therapy. So he's a psychotherapist and all his years of working with family therapy and dysfunctional families, he realised over the years that he was noticing patterns of behaviour that he was then starting to label and the same patterns came through all the time when he was dealing with dysfunctional families and then he got funding in the 80s and he took his research into the corporate world and to use my language and not his it, it, it feels like what we get in organisations is a big dysfunctional family You've got all the different members of the family. You've got everything that's going on. And you wonder why conversations and relationships are fraught in organisations. So he's took that, that 
that learning from family therapy and expolated it into organisational and systems theory. And he has now a new language for practitioners and interventionists and leaders in organisations. So he calls it structural dynamics and um, it's his method of how to dramatically improve face-to-face communication. We should just say that we don't have time to go into the full depth of theory and give it do its full justice right during this conversation. Um, it's just going to be a brief overview, is that right? It, that Indeed. Um, I won't swamp you with theory, but it might be useful to know what's involved in the, the model to know how then that might serve you um, when you are working with groups and individuals. So if anybody wants to know more, they can contact you? Yeah. Your contact details are on the Trainer Tools website, which is www.trainer-tools.com. And they can click through there and they can see all the details about uh, your company and you. And then they could contact you to learn more about this theory. Absolutely, John. So in a nutshell, he looks at three things in a conversation. He looks at three things in the dynamic. And one is actions. He calls it actions, which is what is the verbal stance that people take in a conversation What is it? What could you name what it is they're doing? And basically, he says there's only four actions you will ever see in a conversation. One is a move where someone starts the action. So they put something into the conversation. They have an idea. They set the direction. That's called a move. The second one could be a follow where someone validates and builds on what someone has said in the in the move. So somebody makes a move, somebody would follow that move by saying, I agree with that, I think we should follow what John's saying. So you have a follow, which is um, you know, finishing the action. And then you can have an oppose where someone's correcting the action. So this would be somebody saying, well, actually, no, I don't agree with that. And then they could put in a new move that says, what I think we should do is blah, blah, blah. And the the last action stance is the bystand, where someone voices what they see going on in the conversation. So it's less about content and more about perspective. So they might say, uh, do you know what I've noticed? We've been talking about this for the past 20 minutes and actually nobody's really listening to anybody. Or the bystand could be a personal one, which is I'm getting really frustrated by the absence of um, consideration of each other's ideas. And that bystand then provides a perspective to reconcile all the other actions that are going on in the, in the conversation. So you said there that when it comes to the initial conversation, we all take four stances or, or take four actions. Yeah. Or one of four which could be move, which is taking the conversation to a new place, a new information, new content, new subject matter. Yeah. Then there was follow, 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 which would be agreement, engagement directly with that content. Yeah. Oppose, which is correcting that content somehow, some way. Yeah. And bystand, which is not really a content action. It's more of a kind of process-related comment. Would that be a reasonable summary? That's, a, that's an excellent summary and, and we, we, we have the capacity to do all four. So if you were to complete the questionnaire for this to get your own profile, 
what one of the things you'll get is how high or low is your propensity in each of these four areas. So while we probably can do all of them to some degree, there will be one or two that we do way more than the others. And there's likely to be one that is more difficult for us. So if I could just share my own, I, I've got high move. So if you were observing me in a conversation, you would you would hear me putting in ideas, kicking things off, starting things up. You would see me doing the next thing I do equally as much as by is bystand. So if I'm not moving, I'm bystanding. And the one that I do least is oppose. So the challenging bit in some contexts is very difficult for me. Less so at work than in my private, you know, home, but oppose is definitely low for me. So there are some times when I should oppose, oh, you will get a silence. And what you start to learn then as an interventionist is you see that behaviour going on in groups as well. So you'll see people who perhaps are really, really quiet. And is that because they can't oppose for whatever reason? or they choose not to bystand, or the situation doesn't feel safe. So in a, in a training situation, how safe is it for people to really say what they think and feel? When you observe delegates... Um... In conversation? Sorry, hold on a second, let's try again. <laughs> I, I'm formulating my questions because I'm really thinking about how to apply this. That's why I'm stumbling slightly. So. <laughs> So when you're observing this in other people rather than ourselves, what you see in terms of these four different action stances, are are they as easy to observe as they sound? Absolutely. One of the first things I ever do when I'm working with groups and I introduce them to this model and the language is so that they understand what they're doing. So anytime I am working with coaches, I use this model to help them understand themselves and understand other people. Once you've observed this, where does it go? How do you then turn that round and say, turn it into a healthier balance? Two things. If, if you're working with a group who have issues and you want to help them work their way through the issues, they have to understand what the dynamic is that each of them bring to the conversations that they have. Like I'm working with a, a couple just now, um, a corporate couple where they haven't spoken in a year and one is the boss of the other. And you think, how could that, how could that be? How could this be going on for a year? Yeah, so, it doesn't sound very healthy, does it? No, not at all. So, um, and there's other systemic failures in that organisation that are contributing to it. But at the end of the day, I'm working with each of them separately now so that they understand what it is they bring to the conversations. And then I'm going to get them together to start to share what their propensities are. And then I'll get that in the context of difficult situations and difficult conversations that they're having or not having, as the case may be. So it is quite easy then to, as a facilitator, be really strong in bystand. So I think facilitators who do not have a strong bystand are at a disadvantage when they are facilitating groups because they might have a predisposition to move themselves, in which case they just then start saying what they think needs to happen. So they would control the content too much, do too yeah. much of the thinking. Yeah, they would. 
And I've seen that happen quite a lot. So oh, absolutely, yeah. So knowing that you have a propensity to move, and not that it's bad or wrong, it's I guess it's about appropriateness and and, and how it's helping the conversation, then knowing your own profile really helps you think about what it is you're putting into that conversation as well. So you are able to do strong bystands, which is noticing what's going on in the group, playing that back to them, and then suggesting what do they think they should do next. So it gives people a breathing space, and or, or I'll sometimes say, read it in structural dynamic terms yourself. So instead of saying, you're not listening to me, you can get, I've made four moves and and no one's followed or opposed them. That's a lot less inflammatory than saying nobody's listening to me. Yeah, it's an objective language, isn't it? Yeah. So that's action stances. So what would be the next bit of the model? So the next thing that David noticed was something that he named the operating system. And if you look at organizations as systems, you can start to categorize and say what kind of system you think your organization has and that you have to work with it. But what David noticed is in individuals, we all have our own internal operating system as well. And it's and it's not that visible to us about why things are the way that we are and where we are most comfortable. So that he, he categorized them into three operating systems, one which is called closed, where you are more comfortable where there is an order and structure to everything that you do. So you value stability, tradition, hierarchy, you revere the leader, you like rules and processes, your comfort is around having that neat system as a means of you reaching your organisational goals. So that's closed. And then there's people who have more of an open system where there is more emphasis on communication and getting work done through consensus, valuing individual participative communication, having processes that allow people to make a contribution and um, that everything's done as a we rather than an I. And then the random system is about less about having very strict systems. They're more likely to have fluid systems. It's about autonomy. It's the value that the person brings. And it's about spontaneity and creativity. So in each of us, we will have a propensity for closed, open and random, but there's more likely to be one that you're much, much higher in. And then that then is reflected in the flavour of your conversations. Can I just explore that slightly, just to understand the differences between those three um, systems? And I struggled a little bit to understand where the random fitted in. Is that more of an individual thing? It's more of an individual thing. It's um, it's about the value I bring to the organisation as a person. It's a special kind of order that I bring, which is about infinite possibilities. So it's almost like you need a little bit of all of them. And organisations have a little bit of all of them because um, depending on the number of people who have those 
personal operating systems, that becomes the operating system for the company. So you might have more people in an organisation who have closed propensity, so the system feels like closed, but there might be other leaders in the organisation who have open or random who feel like they're working within a closed system. And that makes some of the conversations they have difficult as a consequence of that. So the main difference between open and random is open is much more about relationships working together mm-hmm. and random is much more about individual creativity and that yeah. freedom, I guess, is the key word. Yeah, absolutely. So then that then affects what I sometimes hear in conversations because I can start to work out quickly what what operating system someone is coming from. So if you knew your operating system, it's, it helps you to understand why some of the, the language that you use in the conversation is the way that it is. I know that I quite like working in organisations that have a nice balance between closed and open, where there is a, lot, a certain amount of structural um, reliability and predictability, but there's also quite a human collaborative approach. But in my own space, I really like the random. I like to have my own space to do my own thing, but I don't want anyone else to have that because that reduces that predictability. <laughs> yeah. What does that make me then? Well, it's really. It could be that you you are you will be all of them, but there might be something about not much difference between your open, your need for an open system and a need for a random system. Yeah. Well, I think the 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 positive of a a closed system is around that predictability and that consistency which when you're working with other people is actually quite can be quite good when it yeah. feels inflexible and rigid is when it becomes negative yeah and that's what i was saying I, I personally like to have my own space to do my own thing and, and I, I would probably guess i'll be reasonably random and when i think about growing up <laughs> I, I guess there were rules around the house and things like that but as long as you kind of obeyed those you were on your own and therefore you had your random space uh-huh. And now you've said that, I can see where that's come from and I can see that I quite like that kind of environment. So when I, t- when I talk to people about this and, I, and I'll say, so what was your system like at home? And, and they'll go, oh, I think it was very open. And I'll say, oh, were you, were you consulted for all your meals? Did you get to choose what was for dinner and what time you ate at? And... Um, were you consulted about where you were I wasn't. Going? I definitely wasn't. And they think it's open, but actually it's more closed than they think it is. I, I think open and random would be like a hippie commune to me. <laughs> I don't know, never been on one. But I had a very closed system growing up. And I think as an adult, this is what I rebelled against. I don't want that. It just drives me mad. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm like. I hate being told what to do. It's it's just really intriguing once you get into it, John. So I think we should end that there because otherwise we'll be talking about that for the next several hours. Where would we go next with this model then? That was the operating systems with the three types of closed, open and random. And what would yeah. be the third aspect of the theory that you want to um, talk about today? So the third, the third part of the theory is what he calls the communication domain. And the communication domain is the language that you would hear in the conversation. So he talks about the language of power, which is about... So people who are coming from a power propensity 
the conversation will inevitably include things like, so when are we going to do it? Uh, do we have the capability to do it? What are the goals? When do we have to reach them? What do we have to do? Um, what do we do to mitigate risk? It's all about um, competency, completion, delivery. People will be familiar with that in organisations. So you've got power, power language. You've got the language of affect, which is about the connection between people. So it's more to do with emotions. It's more to do with looking after the well-being of others. Um, it's about creating trust, caring about individuals. So it's more about people than tasks. So you could argue that power was about task and affect is about people. And then the third domain is meaning, where people come from a place where they have to think about the purpose of things, the logic, the whys, the deep dives into the what fors. Uh, they love exploring ideas, the theories, um, making sense of something in the wider context. So you have three these three different kinds of languages that go on in conversations as well, depending on what your propensity is. So you're calling these languages and you're, and you're focusing it from the point of view of communication. Yeah. But it feels to me like those three don't really map back to just a communication issue. They map back to some kind of priority do you want to achieve tasks do you value relationships do you are you more interested in ideas and theories and concepts etc yeah that doesn't feel like it's just a communication issue yeah but it will be the words that people say that are the uh, are the clue so the so the words betray a deeper value system yeah the words betray the deeper need for power to be the thing that's going on in the conversation so how does this affect us as trainers and facilitators preference for a particular communication domain presumably that will affect how we deliver and how we engage with the people in the, in the training room yeah so if you are a facilitator and your highest propensity is power i'm more likely to see people finishing on time following the timetable and um, being clear about the goals that the the sessions are expected to achieve if someone comes from effect they will be taking more care of the people in the room. So they might put more attention on the relationship at the expense of delivering what it is they have to deliver. And someone who comes from high meaning at its worst can sabotage what's going on because they can keep a conversation going themselves because of their need to find out more information. So, so knowing what your own propensity is really helps you understand what you put back into the conversation, where it can be helpful and where it can be unhelpful. So you had three aspects to the theory there. We started talking initially about the action stances that we actually take in conversations. Then we talked about different kind of operating systems we have as individuals and organizations have. And then at the end there, you were talking about different kind of communication domains, which reflect the things that we value most. Mm -hmm. So how do we pull all that together and use it as trainers, facilitators? Okay, so if, if you were able to know what your behavioral profile was, then you would know your own distinctive patterns of behavior using combinations of all of those propensities and how when you put them into the conversation you get the, the best effect 
and then being mindful that everybody in the conversation also has their own behavioural profile, some of which might clash with yours. So what is it that you need to do or think about in terms of your own development and the quality of what you put into the conversation when you're facilitating groups or working one-to-one. And I thought I I would perhaps look at um, some of the, you know, I do skills assessment around coaching mastery, for example. So if I was observing someone doing a coaching session and, 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 and I was assessing it so that they would get a qualification and I looked at some of the behaviours I would expect to see happening in that conversation. If you think about a negative behaviour which is sometimes observable like the balance of airtime favours the coach and not the coachee. If I see that happening now I I know that the coach is doing too many moves. So they would be introducing too much content and trying to control the conversation? Yeah so not doing enough to let the other person speak and take in what it is they're saying. So if they, if I see a lot of that, if I was going to do feedback on that later, we'd start to, my, my way of describing that would be seen, I saw you making too many moves. And then I would get underneath why they felt the need to keep the conversation going, putting new things into it. Typically, um, a coach for, to share their own experiences and not putting on enough emphasis of the coach's experience. I can see how that gives you a language to talk about that. Is it is the model actually giving you insights that you wouldn't have got anyway? Because I think that if you're observing somebody speaking too much, that's something that you wouldn't need to understand structural dynamics to actually observe. So how would that work then if, say, for example, they fail to emit warmth, you know, so there's no rapport and there's kind of no connection and... The conversation isn't, it's just kind of stilted and not going anywhere. If I wanted to explore that, that might be around the personal communication domain. So they might be more in power than affect and not doing enough at the affect level to create a container of trust and safety. And if affect is really, really low, that's where I would want to help that coach to try and engage in that and find that repertoire to help them with their coaching. So it's offering you that um, different way of understanding how the person's approaching the conversation, that they may be approaching it with too much power or or too much meaning or not enough emotion, which obviously in a coaching role is is very key. Yeah, so I sometimes see coaches, it it looks like they're interrogating the coachee. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, And, and it's because they come from this, need for meaning and they're not noticing the impact of all those questions um, on the part of the coachee. So I, I use it to help me when I, when I see the interaction between them and who they're coaching and this is, this is for training purposes obviously and they're, 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 they're doing this course to get a diploma in coaching then I will use structural dynamics to help me have feedback conversations with the coach on how that conversation went. And they will all already have known their profile. So they'll either play out their profile and you see what you get with that. Is it a good outcome? Could it be better? What could, what could have changed in your repertoire that would have got you a, a better outcome for the coaching conversation? 
So we go back into the personal profile and look at what drove out the the words uh, the, and the conversation that they used in the coaching conversation. And when you're actually coaching people yourself, how do you use it then? The way I use it is is just really noticing what's happening in the moment, so being really mindful. So I used to get really kind of uptight about having to get to an outcome. So I know you kind of create a coaching goal, and with that in mind, I'm much more mindful now of just being in the moment with every question, with every response, and what I do with it next, with no great buy-in to any outcome other than what happens in the conversation. So for for me to do that, I have to pull back on meaning because I'm quite high in meaning. And affect is actually my lowest propensity, although I've I've not got, you know, it's not like I've not got any affect. I do still have a lot of affect, but it's I would engage power or meaning before affect sometimes. So I'm mindful of that when I'm trying to get rapport when I'm trying to build a container for trust when I'm trying to um, coach with respect and contract with people not just contract around the time that you know the outcome it's going to be about the relationship as well so I would add affect into the contracting part of the coaching conversation and with regards to us as facilitators how can we use this when we're doing facilitating sessions Similar, John, in the respect that um, if you're up front and you're introducing something to a group, and I don't do technical training or anything like that myself. I don't do like process training or uh, it's it's mostly developmental type training or Beha- behavioral stuff. Behavioral stuff. I'm just mindful again that it's noticing what the dynamic is in the group and you're helping that group you know so if you've spent a whole morning and the group have been doing something they haven't got to a good outcome they can't see how they've the part that they've played in that how can you as a facilitator using structural dynamics help them by putting that into the conversation to help them understand what's going on. So naming what you see happening, sometimes they can get to newer understandings more quickly. So it doesn't end up a bun fight. It doesn't end up with people falling out with each other. It doesn't end up with relationships affected for the rest of the day or the week because of something that happened on day one. And if you took, if you're addressing individuals in a in a training environment, is it quite useful then as well? Because your answer then was talking more about group dynamics. If there's an individual, how does this help you read a particular individual and respond accordingly? Because as they're talking, I'm naming what their profile is in my head. The more you work with it, the more you understand it, the more you read it. And, and all the time I'm reading it, I'm thinking this person is moving in open power. So if I start to oppose in closed meaning, it's two different conversations, John. It's called conversational clash. It's called a model clash. And unless you see you're in a model clash, you're not hearing each other. So somebody has to stop and take responsibility for knowing how to shift what the stuck pattern of behaviour is that's going on in the conversation. 
So you used a really nice phrase there when you pulled all three together because you said they're moving in open power. Mm-hmm. So you've pulled all three aspects that we've spoken about into yeah. one simple yeah. uh, sentence, which I really like. So, and, you, and, and as you say, if you answer, in, you're going to potentially get a clash. So how would you not get a clash? Do you have to answer in the same thing? Well, what you, Do you have to yeah, follow yeah. in open power. Yeah, you can start to you can start to so now with certain people, and I I read that their you know, their close power propensity. I will write an email to them in close power language, and they're more likely to read it and get it than if I did it in open affect. Right. So if I had a propensity for open affect, it's going to spill over into what I say, what I do, and what I write. And I always look for the balance now in my communications where I, I've got maybe a little bit of all. When you're working with a group, you need all of it because you're going to have to hit the mark with everybody in the group because somebody will be coming from power, somebody will be coming from affect, and somebody will be coming from meaning. But you can't obviously do everybody's preference at the same time because there's nothing wrong with having those deep conversations how would you therefore handle that in a way that respects this theory? Well, in training design, you would design it so that you would have interventions that allow you throughout the course of the day to speak to to speak to all of them. And, and, that, and that balances out and it works. And then in the moment, you're observing what's happening in the dynamic then, because if it's a quick quick if it's a quick task with a quick out for outcome you're gonna suitably get all the the people who have power orientation engaged and maybe less the people who who want to explore the why just noticing that and helping them to notice that that propensity is getting in the way of doing that task so knowing what they're knowing what you're seeing them doing and playing it back to them helps them understand why that frustration is going on in the room in that moment right so even just sort of addressing it directly addressing it head on yeah and and, and recognizing i realize some of you will be motiv- not be motivated during this bit perhaps finding a better way of saying it than that but yeah, yeah. um i i, I guess allows them to tolerate it and allows them to sort of be less frustrated and to be noticing what that feels like because that's what the world is like you know that's what organizations are like there will be times when it will feel like their voice is not in the room so when that happens what can they do to to find their voice to say what it is they're thinking and feeling if if the power conversation's going on too long and there's more people in power than there is in meaning what can you do? What action stance can you take that allows your voice to be heard? So a really powerful bystand might really be helpful in those situations because if you go back to the action stances, a conversation without any moves means there's, there is no action. A conversation without any um, follow, is there's no commitment and buy-in. A conversation without any oppose there's no checks and balances and a conversation without bystand is there's no perspective so most conversations i see don't have all of those four action stances in them i see people 
um, being divided in a room where you've got half of them moving and following on one idea and the other half moving and following on another. And he, he or she who has the greatest power makes a decision, doesn't get checked out. No checks and balances against it, so it may not be the best decision, actually. And then when people go out of the room, they have another conversation. I can see the, the huge value in terms of improving the quality of conversations. But I also really like the way you kind of um, turned what, what, what could be a weakness, as in you're, everyone's in power and the people that are in that, that are more meaning orientated are, are getting frustrated or vice versa. Yes. Actually turning that into a strength and a learning point. Absolutely. And, and noticing, because most people will be frustrated. This happens in training groups as well. They'll be frustrated, but they don't speak. I feel there's quite a lot more to this theory that, than that I've currently got my head around. Right. So if, if I do want to know more, where would you signpost, signpost me to or anybody else listening to this who might want to know more? Where would you point to? Uh, definitely you could, you, you could come along and look at my website because in the last year, um, from being a sort of generalist in organisation development, I am now absolutely focused on helping leaders change their behaviour through the conversations they have. So if they want to go on and look at um, the Houston Exchange, www.thehoustonexchange.co.uk, there's um, articles, there's little tests you can do, there's more information about how to find out about the theory and the practice, uh, where I've worked with it, how I've how I've helped organisations using it. So that, that might be one route uh, to, to uh, getting more information. For practitioners, it's, it can be a wee bit heavy if you haven't done the training, but there's David's book called Reading the Room. So that's Reading the Room by David Cantor. Yeah, is, is a great book for practitioners. Uh, and it would just probably make you want to go and learn more about it. Great. Well, thank you very much for that. I think that was a really interesting conversation. And it's, as I said, it certainly opened my eyes to a theory that I wasn't aware of. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. Okay, thanks. Bye. So that was me speaking to Catherine Thompson, a very heavily edited version of our extremely long and interesting conversation. As I said, if you need any more information, please contact Catherine directly. Links are on the website. Hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye.